From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. Tyler Bloom. Tyler started uh, Tyler Bloom Consulting uh, in June of 2020. And this is our second time together, maybe third, Tyler. Um, I actually don't think we met in person that I can remember ever, but I feel like I know you because when you came into the market with this new venture here, I was like, man, this is exactly what we need. And just like most things that I think are going to happen, they take a little bit longer to materialize. But I think in the last several years, you've really seemed to be busy and well-networked. People are starting to see the value of what you bring to the table. And it coincides with a pretty interesting time that some people will say saved golf, the pandemic, where people came back and rediscovered golf and they're staying with it at very high numbers. That's creating enormous demand and putting a lot of pressure on the workforce at a time when, you know, a workforce specialist like yourself is there to help them. Let's talk a little bit about how what happened during the pandemic has impacted and created opportunities for your business. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It is funny that we've never met in person, but it feels like we know each other's <laughs> stories a little bit. So, yeah, the pandemic for my business, and I think for, for golf in general, was certainly well-timed. Obviously, there's a lot more people playing golf. Memberships are full. I mean, I've heard that almost in every stop I've made is memberships are full. People are using the facility. There's new people getting into the game that weren't golfers prior to the pandemic. So that's been fascinating. And then certainly the golf boom and new course design has been really fascinating, especially down in Florida, Texas. A lot of new design builds going up all over the place. So that's that's exciting, but still feels like from the labor side that the shortage of people, that issue has gotten bigger and bigger. It's not going away anytime soon. So it's been fascinating for sure. Has it made it tricky to navigate knowing that it's harder and harder to get folks to want to do this work? And then the folks that do aspire to it, there's a grind that sometimes selects them out. And both of those things got worse during the pandemic. That had to make your job quite a bit harder, uh, but also maybe make your services more valuable. Yeah, I would think from where I stand now versus three years ago, yeah, where we've got three people on staff, full-time employees of the company, certainly have been blessed to get a lot of really interesting calls from all over the country, not really just one segment. So the demand for help in this area, anybody that's in this line of work, search and placement, especially in this industry, is reaping the benefits of that from actually fulfilling the roles. And those searches are the same. So some places we've certainly been able to find good quality people a little bit faster than maybe some other areas, but our average turnaround time is probably 60 days, you know, maybe a little bit less than that. Is that depending a lot on the financial, what they're being offered and the position? Absolutely. I mean, if it's a superintendent search and the compensation is north of 100000 you're going to get a pretty good look at some qualified people. I think if you're talking an assistant search, and again, we see this ranging from an entry-level assistant maybe making fifty to 60000 all the way up to senior-level assistants maybe making eighty, ninety dollars to $100,000 right now, you see some variability in overall quantity and quality of candidates. But as a whole, my evaluation is there's people that want to get into the industry. It's are we open-minded enough to take them in? And that's been something consistent we've seen in every search at the assistant level. There's people that want to get into this industry and that have have transferable experience, it's are we willing to take on that person and does it fit with the operations right now as it stands? It's so interesting to hear you say that. I was at the Metropolitan Golf Course Superintendent's Winter Seminar at Westchester Country Club, and I was hanging around at the very end with some well-renowned superintendents in the Metro New York area. And one of the superintendents said they were just about to offer an assistant housing and $120,000. Yeah. 
the market for assistance is getting more and more competitive all the time. When you talk about searching for top talent, I think a lot of people just think about superintendents. Can you talk a little bit about how all of a sudden this assistant game has become enormously competitive for those top folks? It's crazy. I mean, you just spoke on an area that I'm in today in Metro New York and, you know, the density and saturation of great clubs. There's a reason there's a talent shortage because there's so many good employers and they're all competing for that same talent. And so the only thing that's really changing is if you're going to go maybe above the industry norm for that salary or compensation and benefits or changing your expectation of skill sets that are going to fill that role. That's been fascinating and certainly not an easy thing that superintendents are dealing with and clubs are dealing with, making those adjustments. In some cases, they just can't. A club may not be able to make that aggressive change in the salary. So if you're not getting that supply of people, what's your other option? Like, what's the opportunity cost, you know, that you're giving up by not taking on somebody with that experience level? That's another set of challenges and and things that we deal with and, and we know employers are facing with, too. You mentioned a couple of times being open to different skills. One of the things I have noticed, and of course, it's not a new trend. I mean, I remember when I was at Michigan State in the early 90s, a good portion of the students in the two-year program there had been to college for something else. We're on a, a second career, even some in their 30s and 40s, I knew back then. You talked a little bit about clubs not valuing different skills. Can you elaborate a little bit about being more open-minded about the kinds of assistance we are looking for and what you mean by different skills. Yeah. Well, I think initially when you look at somebody's resume, and I use this as an example, that somebody who may have worked at two or three different golf clubs, let's just say over the last three to four years, well, there's a lot that's happened in three or four years. We were just talking about the impact of the pandemic, you know, so maybe we need to look at those resumes a little bit differently to say, hey, you know what? Somebody may have fell on some bad luck. Maybe it wasn't their employability issue. Maybe it was just a circumstantial challenge. That's one major thing that we do see quite often is that candidate that, for lack of a better terms, job hopping over the last two, three, four years. And to some degree, we got to be a little bit empathetic of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think from a skill set, a good example is we just made a placement uh, locally here in the Met of an individual who played Division three baseball, you know, so in that person's background was more focused in sports management, but his interest was golf, played golf as a high school student, played golf growing up and was looking for a connection into this industry, you know, and at an entry level assistant, AIT kind of apprentice level, it's a great fit. If the club wasn't open-minded to that style of candidate, he wouldn't even have gotten a sniff. We tend to get a little snobby about how much turf knowledge you have, right? I mean, we like, (laughs) where'd you go, right? Are you a Penn Stater? Are you a Buckeye? Right. Or your Sparty, whatever those things are, we tend to value that. Do you feel like sometimes we overvalue that? I understand why. Right. And I'm not somebody that's going to sit here and change the industry norms on the traditional pathway. But, yeah, for sure. I think we we don't give somebody an honest evaluation of who they are and their professional experience just clearly because, hey, they don't have a turf degree. Some of our best placements were people with no previous education in turf management. Mm -hmm. They may have worked in landscape, lawn care, environment science and they made a pivot. We've even had assistant golf professionals that, you know, had spent some time on the grounds crew and were looking for an entrance point into the section of the industry. I mean, the fact that they understand the climate and the culture around golf, I think is an added bonus. So interesting. Well, I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Tyler Bloom of Tyler Bloom Consulting. This is Frankly Speaking. We're going to take a break. Tyler, we'll be right back uh, after a message from our sponsor.
I had the chance to meet Ken Ross several years ago when Frost Freight Technology was just getting into the golf turf market. And like many of his fellow Minnesota natives, Ken and Frost Inc. had well-designed, innovative, and reliable technology, in this case, spray application technology. It's been a pleasure for me to advocate for the use of their products as I have seen how they perform. See for yourself by visiting them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Tyler Bloom. And Tyler, you're teaching down at the GIS, the golf industry show in Orlando. And I saw a session you were involved in called Work is Hard with No Workers. <laughs> I, I have to say, I hear that a lot. I definitely see other industries making adaptations to not having workers. I talk about the restaurant business all the time, going to four days a week, uh, sometimes going to takeout only. We made completely big adjustments to the pandemic and haven't looked back. What are you talking about in Work is Hard with No Workers? Yeah, specifically, there's a panel of presenters that are going to speak on a couple different topics, but me personally, I'll be talking about my relationships with some of the associations, the Mid-Atlantic, the Philadelphia Association, the Poconos in New York, and just kind of talking about all the different workforce development initiatives, whether it's the registered apprenticeship program, how to go about contacting high schools, career centers, and looking at this from the association level, how can we get involved and how can the industry get involved, not just as an individual facility, but even at the association level. So be given some tips, misguided steps maybe that we took and, you know, some of those failures, but ultimately a lot of successes that we've seen over the last three years. You know, this feels like the long game, Tyler, right? It feels like what we're doing now is starting to get to the high schools, FFA, other workforce initiatives. We've talked about, I think the last time we were together, a lot of them that are available publicly. States offer to industries to help New York You've been involved with the one here. This is a bit of the long game, don't you think? And how long do you think we're actually going to get some traction with this approach? And will it be soon enough? You know, you're right. To some degree, there is a long-term play on this. Is it going to restore the, the pipeline of people to fill all these open assistant positions? Probably not. But, you know, we've also seen some immediate success, whether that's filling seasonal positions, summer help. I'd be remiss to say that there hasn't been short-term success. i give you a great example. Eric David, golf course superintendent at the uh, Naval Academy in Annapolis, was able to connect with a high school counselor, career tech educator, all from a basic introduction from a contact list we created with the Mid-Atlantic. In his first year, you know, last year doing this, he had eight employees. All eight of those employees are coming back for year two. And guess what? They're telling their friends about their experience working at the Naval Academy. Okay. Right? So... There's a great example. I give a shout out to the guys at Noyak Golf Club up in Long Island. They had hired an individual last year who had more of a landscape background, and Ryan Bain is his name. Ryan has been doing online classes with SUNY Delhi in this registered apprenticeship program. One year, that individual has his pesticide license. He's able to help with irrigation repairs, service scheduling, crew management. So although that registered apprenticeship might be a long-term play, we are seeing clubs having success immediately. It's you got to take action. You know, you can't wait for things to happen. You're going to have to be disciplined to it and take some active steps to making your situation better. If you think it's just going to naturally organically happen, that's probably not the play. Well, and, and the thing I would add to that, a lot of what we're dealing with is VOAG teachers. We house the vocational agriculture program, the teacher program here at Cornell. So all the kids that have to teach ag have to get certified through our program to teach ag. And they've added a hundred new vocational agriculture programs just in the state of New York in the last 
four or five years. And what it seems to me is that these places are simply not aware of the opportunities available, number one. And number two, a lot of times, Tyler, they're rural kids who don't want to work in urban environments. And a lot of our golf courses, best jobs, those jobs are in relatively uh, urbanized areas. So this does create a challenge. But can you talk a little bit about your experience and maybe just simply lack of awareness as golf and landscape and sports as opportunities for these young people? It's funny. I think that is certainly one of the biggest issues that the industry faces, whether it's Metro New York or the deep suburbs, the rural country in New York or anywhere. And you're correct people's understanding that this is a career path almost seems to be step one. Mm -hmm. You know, my engagement with ag teachers is they're just not aware that this pathway exists and what does the career look like? So there's a real grassroots initiative that has to happen just to have an awareness of what the job is and what are the different pathways people can take. But I find it funny you say education. I also look and say, is the club industry aware of that barrier? Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's what has been surprising to me is the lack of awareness from the golfer themselves about the challenges. They may hear about it, but they don't really understand some of the deep-rooted issues that superintendents and clubs are facing with the lack of awareness on on the jobs. Oh, that's very interesting. So you must be talking from some firsthand knowledge, because I do think that is a conversation that superintendents better be having with their employers. But at the same time, probably many of them are still getting the same stuff done. So this may be completely transparent to them. I mean, when I visit courses in the desert, you know, they're one or two positions away from 25 on an 18-hole golf course. So they're used to being pretty close to full staff. Other parts of the country where it's a different golf market might not have the same availability. But here's maybe a tough question. When we talk about in New York State, for example, VOAG programs or through rural America, FFA programs, the kids you see in those programs don't look like the people who make up the majority of workforces that I see in big cities and big markets, right? They... They don't look like those people. It's mostly you have white kids in these programs, and yet most of the people who work on golf courses in many markets are black and brown. Are we actually going to find kids that are going to want to do this work from that pool when it looks like the majority are not of that same culture? I think that is one of the biggest roadblocks I think this industry faces, and it's not a PR thing. It's a real issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, and I know that may resonate and not resonate with a lot of your listeners, but it's fact. I mean, I remember sitting at Sparrows Point, Baltimore, 2016, and we had a group of guidance counselors and and educators come to the facility, and and I clearly remember an African-American woman point blank say, the biggest issue you have in terms of getting candidates here and, and people in this community is what the gates out front represent, and that's exclusion. And I know there's a lot of great efforts that are, you know, whether it's the USGA, the PGA, the GCSA, all the associations are all working to try to fix that, but that comes from the individual facility of trying to get some different people in there that, like you said, just look different, act different. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's not easy. I mean, listen, if there was a silver bullet answer, we'd all be sitting on a beach somewhere drinking Coronas and... (laughs) That's exactly right. But what it does, you know, the other part of this that's also pressing and a little bit racial as well is the immigration issue, right? We simply do not have 
reasonable immigration policy here in the United States. I mean, the fact of the way we talk about the border, the way we talk about people who are coming across, um, how has that impacted the workforce in certain parts of the country? Are we seeing it? I mean, it started about four or five years ago. We simply were letting less people in. I think those numbers are back up. And of course, you and I know the majority of those people are coming here. Almost everyone have come here for a better life and a work hard and contribute to get the American dream that everybody seems to believe uh, is available to them. Uh, how's immigration impacting your work? Yeah, and this is what I hear from superintendents is a lot of our labor challenges are a reflection that the immigration has been so difficult. Those key positions, you know, an entry-level position is where the immigrant workforce really helps. And when you take that away, man, now you're really trying to get people that may not be in alignment with this type of work. You know, and we're trying to pull people into this industry that may not be qualified or skilled or really of interest. As I said, there's no silver bullet. My, my experience with immigration is in this last year, we've engaged with a number of international candidates from Europe, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, and they desperately want to come here because of their lack of opportunities in their current situations. But the big gap they face coming here is the time they get that visa process, you know, oh. moving forward. And if I'm an employer, it's hard to remain invested into that when you need that position filled yesterday. That's right. You know, and that's certainly in my line of work, we haven't evolved to, to taking that on. We certainly recommend some trusted people we've worked with in the past mm-hmm. to help with immigration. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think programs like Ohio State had their international program and still does. Yep. I mean, I think that's a real viable solution. And if we can continue to help make those connections internationally, there's a ton of qualified people that want to come to the state. It's just as an employer going to be patient enough to see that through when they need, you know, they need a position filled yesterday, like I said. Yeah, that's right. And I would just make a shout out to Mike O'Keefe and the Ohio State program has brought uh, an enormous amount of talent into this country. And I think, to your point, it's burdensome to get into this country. And certainly, I think, you know, you want to have a stringent policy that ensures proper things are faced. But, you know, the reality is the stacks of paperwork that are often required are just so burdensome. That winds up being what the Ohio State program winds up using whatever money you pay to be part of it to just administer the paperwork and connect them to the big, deep network that they have. Now, listen, Kyler, let's take another break. Uh, We'll come back and we'll wrap up our conversation with some future topics as we get ready for the golf industry show. And everybody's going to bump into you down there and say, what the hell did you have that conversation with Rossi for? But in the meantime, I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Tyler Bloom. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. I remember when here at Frankly Speaking, we were in need of another title sponsor a few years ago as the industry continued to contract. I was at a regional golf course superintendent association meeting and I had a chat with my longtime colleague, Tom Weiner, the VP of sales for the plant food company. Now, I'd gone a few rounds with Tom over the years during our early days at Beth Page and the two U.S. Opens and PGA events. I was pleased when Grant Platt said yes. And I'm still pleased to support the use of plant food products that are based on university research. Products and services is what set Plant Food Company apart. Meet with a plant food representative to see for yourself.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Tyler Bloom, and we are talking workforce, labor, and some of the biggest issues that face uh, our industry. And it's very funny, Tyler, because, you know, for a while, it used to seem like if you were over 50, uh, that was a, a risk to your job. And I think now we're starting to see at least more and more superintendents staying on longer. Maybe they were going to get out and the economy picked up and things got better. Maybe they stuck it out for just a few more years. But it seems to me, I don't even want to say we're graying, but certain jobs are not turning over the way they used to. I mean, I certainly see that in the med area, you know, a high-end golf market, but I also see it in smaller golf markets. Clubs seem to be a little bit more willing to stick with stability rather than, well, let me clear this person out of here to get a cheaper salary in. Uh, what are your thoughts on guys staying in jobs longer and that's putting a plug on the movement of somebody's assistance? I would think, again, that might be a little trickle-down effect, too, of COVID. People didn't want to lose good quality people. I mean, the institutional knowledge of some of these superintendents that you're talking about, it's hard to replace that. Is it worth the risk and the cost of lowering that salary? And you may have a gap in that experience from a golfer standpoint or service or agronomic conditioning. And I do think, to give credit to employers, that we have done a better job of trying to provide a better environment, whether it's improved benefits, 401ks, compensation. I think there has been a strong effort for clubs to make adjustments to be to retain people. So I know that there's been a move in certain markets this year, you know, Philadelphia had a number of jobs kind of come available. But as a whole, it seems like there hasn't been that big wave that I think a lot of us felt was coming. Um, and certainly we're not trying to kick anybody to the curb and don't want to see anybody. Hey, I think it's smart for a club to continue to invest. And honestly, what we're seeing a lot of is can we build succession, yeah. right? So if we have a superintendent that is above 50, how can we make a smooth transition, whether that's to their current assistant or higher? hiring an assistant to be able to take some of that institutional knowledge. We're seeing a lot more of that. Well, it's so great to hear you say that about clubs, recognizing the value of their current superintendent, not just the cost of that current superintendent, right? That's where I think uh, for a while people were looking at the cost only and not the value. And it seems like you might be right about this, that the pandemic has then added value to those people that have helped the clubs weather this particular phenomenon. I think that is a very good sign. I I would agree with you 100%. And on this program, I had a conversation with Mike Morris, uh, the longtime superintendent, now I think moving into a different role at Crystal Downs up in Frankfort, Michigan. Mike was there for a really long time, and they developed a succession plan. I was involved with one out at the Vineyard Golf Club from Jeff Carlson to Kevin Banks. Um, are you seeing this more, and what are the characteristics of the clubs that are doing it? It's not just high-end clubs. I even see run-of-the-mill sort of clubs doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, anybody with some level of business sense, and certainly these clubs are made up of business people, well, <laughs> and then maybe they're instituting some of those best practices from their own businesses, and I might be giving them too much credit, but, you know, certainly seeing how can we take outside of industry practices to implement here. Is there a characteristic? Well, that relationship with the superintendent, clearly that superintendent has built up enough credibility and reputation at that facility and within
within the golf community that they respect their opinion and they know them as the resident expert. They probably, if I'm guessing, are speaking with their peer clubs that maybe went a different direction on that transition and they realize, oh man, there's some gaps there. Maybe there is a better method here to build in some succession. The good thing is from, again, what we've seen is salaries as a whole, being superintendents, assistants, equipment managers, the salaries are going up as a whole. So I think there's more support for this department. I know there's still probably a lot of people and clubs that need more of that support and more education, but it does feel like maybe the golf courses are looked as the fuel to the organizational success in everything else. It, it drives the engine and the revenue for food and beverage, golf rounds and dues and all that. So again, it comes back to that superintendent having that credibility and building those relationships, I think, long term. Have you seen assistance searches where it was openly discussed that the superintendent would be moving on in the next three to five years and this position, as well as being an assistant, is a precursor to maybe taking the full-time job? Absolutely. I do. I mean, I don't want to single anybody out, but not only the positions that we've filled, some of the other job postings that you see out there, whether that be Bruce Williams, Tim Morgan, you know, some of these other individuals that are helping out in these searches. So for sure, I would think that it's a fresh look at maybe there's a different way to go about this. Okay, listen, Tyler, as we wrap up, I got a really uh, sort of future question, if you will. Maybe not as far in the future as we might think, but we certainly have seen a lot of industries that have been able to delay investments in certain types of technology because labor has been cheap and available. That seems to be a crossroads that our industry might be facing. In the workforce, as you're talking to people, and I had a conversation with John Lobenstein at the Montgomery Parks on this very program, and he put a uh, Husqvarna autonomous mower out on a fairway and got some questions about, hey, is this taking away a person's job? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what you see the potential for technology to compensate for the fact that we may just not be able to get enough butts to uh, mow and spray and feed and top dress and airify and pick up the plugs and blow and rake the bunkers. You know what I mean? seems like bunkers to me are ripe for uh, for automation. I'm wondering what your thoughts are as, you know, new to the whole scheme here where you think technology is going to start playing a role. And have you seen it start to play a role yet? It's hysterical. I literally... In my last meeting, we were talking about automation, and my thoughts are that not knowing all the economics behind it, it's a time saver. You know, and when you don't have the supply of workers, you can't delegate the work to your workers, so you're going to have to delegate it to a machine, automation. I don't see how this isn't a realistic approach in maintenance practices in five, ten years, and that probably comes a little bit sooner. Me, personally, I've seen the Husqvarna's, certainly have seen demos, videos, and things like that of fairway mowers, triplexes, the bunker machines, Roomba-style pieces. So I think the industry needs to look, how do we adopt those? And and if I'm a superintendent, I'm looking to be educated. So you can start planning for that in five, 10 years from a capital expense. I mean, I imagine this isn't going to be a cheap solution, but (laughs) yeah, for sure. I don't see how you wouldn't be exploring this in your operations. Now, the other part of technology that I think might address the assistance question is how much can I rely on predictive models, growth models, remote sensing, maybe in another five years when we figure out what all those colors mean in those remote sensed pictures. We're going to get there soon. I think the GS3 tool from the USGA is going to really break a lot of ground for monitoring performance over time and getting a ton of data for us to learn about. 
Do you see superintendents relying on certain technologies, maybe when they don't have the expertise uh, available, like a superintendent looking at risk models, determining if they're going to spray or not when they're the ones that have to spray versus, you know, delegating it to someone else? Uh, could technology actually help us there as well, make the job more tenable, even with less people? It's interesting because, again, it's probably a function of bandwidth. Like all these different technologies, they're great. They're great tools, a lot of great data. If you have the bandwidth to actually like implement them, but I would say that, you know, as those predictive models become more sophisticated and fine-tuned and user-friendly, absolutely. I mean, why would you not? I was at that kind of facility where I was the scheduler, the person applicating, the person checking in with the pro shop. So, hey, if those kind of models help streamline my day or make better decisions, absolutely. Well, and I'm also thinking that my experience working with young people at a university setting over 30 years and meeting young professionals in the field, there's a desire for young people to be in work that includes technology. So that could be an exciting, attractive thing for a young assistant if they were walking into an operation that used the Greenkeeper app or Deacon or Playbooks or any of those digital tools that might aid in them. Has that separated itself out at all, that maybe there are some young people who like having technology in their work life, not just on InstaFace? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I think you see it even in the job advertisements, too. People are putting that as like a primary responsibility for assistance. So I think that's something that would attract people to be able to use some of the phone apps and the TDRs and the drone technology. And it's a great way to introduce them into the industry in a totally different way than here's a weed eater and here's a bunker. Like, get going. You've got holes one through 18. <laughs> this might be a more intuitive, integrative way to get them hands-on training and keep them engaged so they're not burned out and thinking that's all they're doing, you know? Hey, Tyler, thanks for taking the time. I'm looking forward to seeing you down at the Golf Industry Show in Orlando. And, and congratulations on getting the business uh, up and going. It's really great to see uh, this successful and you bringing a fresh look at this part of the industry. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Tyler. Yep, thanks, Frank. I appreciate it. Big thanks to Tyler Bloom at Tyler Bloom Consulting. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.